Today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you again for the gift of your word. Thank you for its relevance. Thank you for its power. Thank you that it's spoken to people down the centuries. And we pray today that we might hear your voice speaking to us. Thank you that you know everything about us. Thank you that you know what we need to hear today. And we pray that we might hear your still, small voice whispering to us or shouting to us what we need to hear today, that we might hear your voice and respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we started this series of talks looking at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we're looking at the work and the person of the Holy Spirit throughout the whole of the Bible, starting with the Old Testament right through to the whole of the New Testament. And we're looking at this passage today in Luke chapter 4 that Andrea read for us a few moments ago that focuses back to the Old Testament but also brings it very much into the present. And I want to tell you a true story. It's the early 2000s, about 2003, 2004. And the latest wave of whatever it was that was coming over the Atlantic was hitting the UK church. After people like John Wimber, and after the Toronto blessing, and different people felt differently about that, whether it was of God or not, and whether you should fall forward or whether you should fall backwards, there was all sorts of stuff going on. There was stuff happening at a place called Pensacola that sounded like Pepsi-Cola, but it was a bit different. And there were sort of wave after wave of, of church things that were happening, particularly to do with the Holy Spirit, that were coming over from North America. And the latest one of these things hit the UK. And one nationally known UK church leader phoned another nationally known UK church leader and said, you've got to come. You've got to come tomorrow night. We've hired the London Excel Center, huge venue. And this is it. This is it. The revival that we've been praying for 
is coming. The revival that we've sought is here. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in a way that you and I have been praying for for years. The second nationally known UK church leader took his friend by surprise because he took out a Bible and he read these words from Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. And the second nationally known UK church leader said, no, I'm not going to come to the Excel Center with you tomorrow evening for two reasons. One, there is European football on television tomorrow night, and I have promised my son that I will watch it with him. And secondly, those verses from Isaiah 58 are what true revival looks like. And when that starts to happen... When we start to see the church in the UK doing those things, then I will come and pray with you at the London Excel Center. And he put the phone down, because in those days, you could put the phone down. And it's quite striking as we think about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And if I'm honest, as I look at the books on my bookshelves and the commentaries that are to do with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, that this particular aspect of the person and work of the Holy Spirit that we're looking at today, the spirit of justice and compassion, that particular facet of the Spirit's work is often missing, has often been omitted. That when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we talk about lots of things. We talk about power. We talk about gifts. We talk about fruit. We talk about all sorts of things, mainly, if we're honest, to do with the personal experience of the Holy Spirit. But what is quite striking is that here in Luke 4, we have one of the few times when Jesus declares that he is the Messiah. One of the few times that Jesus himself says, look, God is on me. Look, look at me. I am the Messiah. One of the few times when Jesus, as it were, owns up to his own identity and purpose and talks explicitly about the work of the Holy Spirit in quoting these verses from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. And yet, in contrast with what Jesus says at the start of his public ministry, why the Holy Spirit has come upon him, most of the books in most of the Western church in America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand 
and the UK, most of the teaching around the person and the work of the Holy Spirit omit the very thing, the first thing that Jesus says was the purpose why the Holy Spirit came upon him at the beginning of his public ministry. Now, over the last 100 years in the Pentecostal movement and what's known as the charismatic movement, there have been many, many wonderful things. There has been a renewed rediscovery of intimacy in worship. Rather than just singing good, stoic hymns that talked about God, we've learned, particularly over the last 50 years, to sing songs that encourage us to think about God as Father, that help us to engage with God in a relationship. We talk to God directly as you, as He, as our friend. Sometimes it may cross the boundaries and we go into sort of Jesus is our boyfriend territory, but that's a whole different talk for a different time. But there's been lots of good things. There's been an explosion in evangelism, particularly through things like the Alpha Course. And whatever you may think about the Toronto Blessing, and it did divide the evangelical church in the UK right down the middle, Nicky Gumbel will say that the thing that really sort of acted as a catalyst for the Alpha Course around the world was actually the Toronto Phenomenon. Something happened during those weeks and months that galvanized particularly HDB, but then churches associated with HDB to experience and pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in a completely different way and to emphasize evangelism in a way that they previously hadn't. We've seen a rediscovery of praying for things like healing, physical healings, which were all part of the, the physical ministry of the life and work of Jesus. But Jesus' first description here in Luke chapter 4, when he says why the Holy Spirit came upon him, is often missed out. In Luke 4, we have what is described as the Nazareth Manifesto. Most of us over the past few weeks have had leaflets pushed through our letterboxes, um, even by the Green Party. We've had paper pushed through our letterboxes, which I don't quite understand, but there we go, we'll leave that one, uh, asking us to, to vote for them. And some of us, although perhaps not enough of us, on Thursday did vote. And what we have here is Jesus' manifesto as he's setting forth, as he's setting out who he is and why he has come. In previously, in Luke chapter 3, we, we see the baptism of Jesus and the Holy Spirit like a dove, not as a dove, but something like a dove. Like a dove gives the idea that something like a dove is the best thing that the writer can get to, to describe what happened when the Spirit came upon Jesus. And the voice from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him as he begins his public ministry and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in a new way. And then he's led, interestingly, by the Spirit into the wilderness where he has the temptations and the encounter with the devil. And then he returns, we're told, in the power of the Spirit. Those three things that happen. Jesus, led by the Spirit, returns in the power of the Spirit, having been full of 
of the Spirit. So something has happened. Some dynamic has changed in the encounters that Jesus has with the devil in the wilderness. He goes full of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit, but he returns now in the power of the Spirit. Something significant has changed. Something significant has happened because of what happened in the desert. And now he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, And just let these words sink in, as was his custom. Jesus, the Son of God, used to go every week to the synagogue, as was his custom. He didn't take weeks off. He didn't have some me time. As was his custom, he would go week by week. And if you think my talks are boring, imagine what it was like for Jesus week after week, sitting, listening to somebody else expound the Scriptures and the number of times that Jesus must have been tempted to do the face palm and go, not that, it doesn't mean that. But he never did. But he went week after week after week. And then there came this moment When on this particular day, at this particular time, on this particular Sabbath, he stood up. He was known perhaps already as a bit of a preacher, and he stands up, and the attendant takes the scroll out of the wall, because that's what they used to do. The parchments were kept in a a wall in different sort of sections, in, in, in shelves. And he takes the scroll, and he gives him the scroll of Isaiah. Maybe Jesus asks for that particular scroll. We don't know. We're not told that. Maybe it's the appointed reading for the day. But Jesus stands up to read, just like Andrea stood up to read a few moments ago, and he chooses deliberately to read these words from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and then sits down. Now, in our culture, we stand up to preach. In first century Palestine, when you were a preacher, they looked after you better, and they gave you a seat. So Jesus sat down to sit, to teach, and that was the signal. That was the signal to everybody in the synagogue that he was ready to preach, that he had something to say. Our signal is that one of us gets up from the front row, manages not to trip up on our way up to the platform, and we stand here with an iPad or an iPhone. That's our signal that we're ready to preach. In Jesus' time, you sat down to teach. Much kinder. Maybe also longer. Because if I was sitting down, maybe I'd take even more... No, we won't go there. But he sits down... And then he drops this bombshell. Today, this scripture 
is fulfilled in your hearing. It was the drop mic moment to end all drop mic moments. Imagine if Andrea had read that passage and then gone, it's talking about me. I, Andrea, am the Messiah. You know. We would have been concerned, probably for your mental health. But that's what happens. Jesus says today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What he's saying is, you see these verses. You see these verses that speak about God's anointed. You see these verses that speak about God's special messenger. You see these verses that speak about the coming of the kingdom of God. This scripture, these verses are fulfilled today in your hearing. I am the one that these verses are talking about. I am the one that 800 years before, when Isaiah wrote these words, he was talking about me. This is me. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And what Jesus is doing here is doing several things. Firstly, he is announcing himself as the Messiah. He's saying, I am the Lord's anointed. I am the one that all these prophecies, and there are over 360 prophecies in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that that fulfilled prophecies that were written hundreds of years before. Now, the cynical may say, well, Jesus knew them, that's why he did those things. It's a bit of a circular argument, but there we go. But there are all sorts of details that happened even at his birth that Jesus himself couldn't have manipulated. And all these prophecies, 360 at least, came true in the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, all this has been leading up to me. And then he declares, secondly, that the Spirit of God has anointed him. Now, he was always God. He's always God, okay? As we looked at last week, um, the, the Holy Spirit was there at creation in Genesis 1. But also Jesus was there at creation. He is the one through whom all things were made. So Jesus has always existed. He was the Word. In the Word was the beginning. So Jesus has always existed. He takes human form. He becomes fully human and yet remains fully God. A sort of tension that the church took about 400 years to begin to struggle with and has struggled with for the last 2,000 years, because how can God be God if he's up there and down here and in Jesus and in me at the same time? Discuss. Just recite the creeds. It's fine. But there's over 100 years of debate about those words in the creeds. But Jesus is saying, in a new way now, I've been anointed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit, with whom he's always existed in the Trinity, has now come upon him in a different way, and he has been anointed. 
And from that moment, we see, full of the Holy Spirit, he's led by the Spirit, in the, and then he returns in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is when he begins his public ministry in a different way. So again, there's something different now in the relationship between Jesus and the way in which the Holy Spirit is manifesting himself through Jesus as he begins his public ministry. And then Jesus describes why he's come. And he says that I've come to do several things. So firstly, he says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, again, in the Western world, in the evangelical church that we belong to, there's been huge debate over the last 30, 40, 50 years. What does it mean when Jesus refers to the poor? Does it mean spiritually poor? Or does it mean economically and socially poor? And there are books that have been written on both sides. Theologians have taken a lot of time. Conferences are held. People take positions on this. People get or lose jobs on what they say about this in theological colleges and in churches. Evangelical tribes are split between the spiritually poor and the economically poor. If we were to go to Jesus and say to him, Jesus, when you talked about the poor, were you as referring in Matthew's gospel, perhaps to the spiritually poor, but were you in Luke's gospel referring to the economically poor? You know what I think Jesus would do? I think Jesus would just look at us and in a sort of divine way scratch his head and whatever the Aramaic equivalent is say, you what? Because somehow we've divided two things that Jesus never divided. And we've made a distinction where Jesus would make no distinction. And where for some people it's become an either or, Jesus, I don't think he'd even say it's both and. It's a non-question. Because Jesus himself would make no distinction at all between the spiritually poor and the economically or financially or socially poor. He's just talking about people who are poor. What's interesting in the example that he gives in the verses that follow, because understandably people are a bit upset in Nazareth. When Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled on your hearing, people are, are a bit thrown by that in the same way that they would if Andrea had said that she was the Messiah. One or two of us would have taken her aside over coffee. And that's what happens with Jesus. They go to him and they say, in the Aramaic, what the bunkum are you saying? That is the essence of what they're expressing. And he gives them two examples. Verses 26, 27, he says, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but in a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And then he talks about Naaman, a Syrian army general. 
And what is striking to me is that Jesus gives two examples, one of whom is economically poor, the widow that helps Elijah, one of whom is spiritually poor, Naaman the Syrian, one of the commanders of the Syrian army, somebody who financially would have been really, really well off. And so it seems to me that Jesus sort of guesses about all the debates that are going to happen in the Western church in 2,000 years' time and says, I'm going to give you two examples to help you. I'm going to talk about a widow who is financially poor. I'm going to talk about a Syrian general who is financially rich but spiritually poor. He doesn't let us off the hook. He's saying it's both and. It's not either or. We're just called to proclaim good news to the poor. And yet we still have to write books and we still have to go to conferences and we still seemingly have to have this debate about whether it's the spiritually poor or the economically, socially and financially poor that Jesus is talking about. Then Jesus says he's come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. The word freedom means, or can mean, release, discharge, let go, forgive, or release from debt. And the word for prisoners or captives is an interesting one. There are other words that Luke could have chosen. But Luke deliberately chose, chooses the word for prisoners of war. He's not talking about criminals. He's not talking about political prisoners. That's why I chose that picture of Russian soldiers who have been taken prisoner in Ukraine. Jesus is saying, I've come to bring release, freedom, forgiveness for people who are prisoners of war, people who've been taken captive in a conflict. Not people who've broken the law, not political prisoners, but people who've been taken captive in a conflict. Elsewhere, the Bible describes the fact that you and I are slaves to sin and that we are caught up in a celestial spiritual battle between the forces of good and evil. You and I are the prisoners of war. And Jesus says that he has come to bring release, to bring freedom for people like you and people like me. Then Jesus says, I've come to bring recovery of sight to the blind. And again, the same conferences and the same books are written and say, well, was Jesus talking about people who were spiritually blind? Or was Jesus talking about people who were physically blind? And again, Jesus would say, duh, it's both. Now, Recovery of sight physically to the blind was one of the signs of the Messiah. There were several messianic signs that the Jews were looking for. And the ability to restore physical sight to the blind was one of those. But also here Jesus is talking about people who are spiritually blind. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about the fact that the God of this age has blinded the hearts and minds of unbelievers. Don't know whether you've had that experience of talking to somebody about Jesus and it's as though you're just hitting a brick wall. I had that experience with my dad. 
He'd been a spiritualist, a faith healer for about 16, 17 years. And from the time I became a Christian when I was 18, he, I started to have conversations with my dad about the Christian faith. And whenever we got to the person of Jesus, it was as though I was hitting a brick wall. My dad could not see because of all the stuff that he was involved with. And then there came the moment in 1985 when something happened in his life. He was prayed for in a different way, and he was able to see Jesus for who he was. And my friend Pippa, in a hospital in Macclesfield, in Cheshire, in a psychiatric hospital, said to my dad, I think, Ken, it's about time you met Jesus. And my dad said, yes. And I went, that's not fair. Because I've been working for 17, 18 years to tell my dad about Jesus. You waltz in, Pippa. Tell my dad. And he just goes, yes, I want to know Jesus. But it was because the spiritual blinkers had been removed from my dad. The blindness that had been there was gone. And now he could see Jesus for who he really is. That's how we need to be praying for our friends, for our work colleagues, for our family members, that they might be able to see Jesus for who he is. Recovery of sight to the blind. And then Jesus finally says, I've come to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Now this is elsewhere referred to in Leviticus as the year of jubilee. And this was a genius idea that God set up that every seven years, or perhaps every 49 years, society within the Jewish nation should have a cultural and economic and financial reset. That every seven years, all the land that had been bought and taken off people was returned to its original owner. All the people who'd been taken into slavery were set free, and all debts, student or otherwise, were cancelled. Now, strangely, it's an idea that never caught on. It's funny, that, isn't it? That those people who had the land, and those people who had the money, and those people who had the slaves, were strangely reluctant to give those things up. It did happen from time to time, but what an amazing idea if it was to actually happen. That every seven years, there was a cultural, economic, and financial reset or reboot. It's revolutionary. It was then, and it would be now. But perhaps what really ticks off the people in Nazareth that are listening to Jesus is that even though he quotes this verse from Isaiah 61, he only quotes half the verse. He only quotes the first bit about declaring the year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't quote the second part of the same verse. Now, these people in Nazareth, are living in occupied territory. Just like the people in the Donbass in Ukraine. Just like that picture of Mariupol. The people in first century Palestine were living in occupied territory. The Romans had come. 
And the one thing that the people in Palestine wanted was vengeance. They wanted revenge. They wanted the Romans to be cleared out militarily, just like the people in Mariupol, just like the people in Donbass, quite rightly have those same feelings today. So it's significant, however, that Jesus does not quote the second half of that verse from Isaiah 61. Because the second half of that verse from Isaiah 61 speaks about the vengeance of the Lord. And what Jesus does not do is promise that he has come to bring revenge against God's enemies. He doesn't promise that he's come to clear the Romans out militarily. Because in the rest of his life and the rest of his teaching, Jesus would outline and describe a kingdom of justice and peace and compassion and love that was very different to the type of messiahship that the people in first century Palestine were looking for and were expecting. And it really annoys the congregation in Nazareth. It really annoys them so much that they take him to the edge of a cliff and they're going to throw him off the cliff. But we're told that Jesus just turns and walks right through them. So good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, the year of the Lord's favor, and no vengeance. Now isn't it striking, perhaps for you as it was for me this week, that so often when we talk about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, we don't hear about these things. And if I'm honest, there have been times in my preaching and in the preaching here at P's and G's when that has not been our emphasis. That we've got caught up in this linking of the Holy Spirit with personal experience. Now, the Holy Spirit is the comforter. That's true. He does come to bring us reassurance. He does come to bring us comfort. But isn't it striking that when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit being given to him at the start of his public ministry, he doesn't say, and the Spirit has anointed me that I might feel better, that I might feel happier, that I might feel closer to God. Now, that does happen in his baptism, but when Jesus starts to expound why the Spirit has been given, he starts to speak about justice. He starts to, starts to speak about good news to the poor. He starts to speak about recovery of sight for the blind. He starts to speak about things to do with justice and compassion. In the 1950s, the founder of one of our partner agencies, World Vision, was in a war zone. He was in Korea. And it was a war zone just like we're seeing now in Ukraine. There were refugee children just like there are now from Afghanistan or Yemen or Syria as well as Ukraine. And it was in that context of being an American soldier that Bob Pierce, who was a Christian, prayed this prayer and wrote these words, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. It wasn't from the comfort of an office block or somewhere in New York, or Washington, or California. It was actually in the middle of a war zone where Bob Pierce prayed that prayer, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. And it's a very dangerous prayer to pray. 
because the Holy Spirit was not given to make us feel happy. Yes, the Holy Spirit is given to make us reassured that we're God's children. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a child of God without the Holy Spirit living in you. It's impossible. But in the words of Michael Green, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, comes not to make us comfortable, but to make us missionaries. That's why the Holy Spirit is given. If we claim to be filled with the Spirit of God, then we'll want to show God's compassion and justice because that's who God is, who the Holy Spirit is, what Jesus felt. And if we are the body of Christ, then we will feel what Jesus feels. And it might be uncomfortable at times. It is amazing the way in which you responded as a church to our micro appeal. We asked you to give, a target was £40,000, and you so far have given £54,000. Just amazing. Thank you for what you've given financially. And that money will go to churches and charities and projects and people who are doing exactly the things that Jesus was talking about when he quoted those verses from Isaiah. But the danger is that in giving money, we let ourselves off the hook. Because do we pray in the same way? And do we serve in the same way? Many of you do. But I want to challenge those of you today who are not serving in the life of this church. At the moment, because of the pandemic, all our serving teams are short. But there are particular needs. So, for example, our Saturday meal team. There have been times over the past two months when we've almost had to cancel because we haven't had enough team members. It's been touch and go, where we've had to maybe go to a, a, a carry-out or a takeaway rather than serving a meal because there simply aren't enough team members. Maybe you could serve once every six weeks. Once every six weeks. We've got two opportunities over the next few weeks to share in the welcome to people who are coming to Edinburgh as refugees. This Friday, uh, Connor and Vary are hosting an event to help welcome Ukrainian refugees here in church from 2 o'clock till 4 o'clock, and they're looking for a team. That's this Friday. Connor, do you want to stand up? There's Connor. If you can help this Friday afternoon from 2 till 4, then uh, it would be great if you could see Connor afterwards. Because Connor would also like your help on Saturday the 21st from 9.30 a.m. to 1 o'clock when we're hosting an event to welcome people from Hong Kong to Edinburgh. And there's going to be an anticipated quarter of a million people coming from Hong Kong to the UK in the next few years. And then there's all sorts of questions that that raises for us. Deeper questions about proximity. Uncomfortable questions. Why have we responded in the way that we have to refugees from Ukraine in a way that we didn't respond to refugees who were coming from Afghanistan, Yemen, or Syria? That's quite an uncomfortable question. Because the reality is that proximity matters. And when for many of us, the people who are coming look more like us, then we're more likely to do something. 
Are we in danger of behaving exactly like the congregation in the synagogue in Nazareth, who thought that the kingdom of God was for them and people like them, rather than Jesus, who describes a kingdom that is open for all and for everyone, a kingdom of justice and compassion? And then the final kicker. Are we really prepared to allow our hearts to be broken by the things that break the heart of God? It is a very dangerous prayer to pray. Because if we pray that prayer and we mean it, our lives, individually and corporately, may never be the same again. Wasn't ever the same again for Bob Pierce. But if we truly ask God to fill us with his spirit, not so that we might feel happier or nicer or closer to God, but that in feeling closer to God, we feel the things of God. And just as God's heart breaks for this world, our hearts will break for this world as well. Let's pray. I'm going to ask Martin and the band if they'd like to come up as we prepare to move into a time of celebrating communion, celebrating the meal of the kingdom, as we think about the spirit of the kingdom. And Lord, if we're honest today, we don't know whether we're ready to pray that prayer. whether we want our hearts to be broken by the things that break your heart. Because that will be messy. And it may be uncomfortable. It may be something simple like some of us going on the rotor for Saturday meal. Of welcoming people, of serving people on a Saturday evening and ensuring that they feel a sense of dignity and respect and worth as we hand them food in your name, have a conversation with them, listen to them. Or perhaps it will be helping out at one of those events for refugees on Friday afternoon or Saturday the 21st. But Lord, for others of us, it might long-term, it might mean a change not just in our hearts, but in our lives. It might mean a change of career. It might mean a change of job. It might be a change of priority. It might be a change that has to begin with us. Lord, we ask your forgiveness when our priorities have not been your priority. When ourselves have been our focus rather than your kingdom when we've been indifferent, when your heart has been broken. And so as we take this bread and remember again this morning the value and the worth that you place upon every single human life, would you move in our hearts? Would you break our hearts? And would you change our hearts? In Jesus' name. Amen.